Welcome to A Seat at the Table, a podcast dedicated to highlighting the importance of cultural intelligence in the workplace and brought to you by MFHA, the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance. We believe an inclusive business is a profitable business, so join us as we dive into practical advice on how you can communicate effectively with people from different cultural backgrounds. I'm your host, Jerry Fernandez, founder and president of MFHA. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Really excited to be here with you. My name is Hussein Kitabwala, and I'm the CEO for Sedexo's Service Operations Organization in North America. Jerry, thanks for creating this opportunity for us to spend some time with you to share our Asian experiences. I'm also really honored to be here as the sponsor of the Pan-Asian Network Group, fondly known as Pang in the Sodexo world. And what we would like to do is have you join us in listening to this podcast on what your Asian colleagues want you to know, uh, everything you want to know about what being an Asian American is and how can we help add a little bit more of flavor to knowing us a bit better. The podcast is hosted by Jerry Fernandez. Jerry is the CEO of the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance. And for the past 25 years, MFHA has been building bridges that drive the economy through diversity in the food and hospitality industry. What Jerry is about to moderate is a provocative conversation, I hope, with myself and a couple of my colleagues, Elisa Wang, who is currently the co-chair of PANG, and Linda Lan who was the chair of Pang. Hopefully, we'll have an opportunity to share with you our personal stories and lives and how we got to where we are today and also discuss how each one of us has been impacted by the recent census surge in hate crimes that is weighing heavily on each one of us. So without further ado, I thank Jerry for leading us through this discussion and providing us this opportunity. And hopefully, it'll be a fruitful, powerful, and engaging discussion for you as well. Jerry, over to you. Thank you, Hussein, and uh, thank you to all of our listeners out there in Sodexo land. I'm excited to be here. I've been involved with Sodexo for all 25 years of MFHA's existence. In fact, Sodexo was a founding member. I served on our board of directors for a very long time, and we're excited about all the work that we get to do with Sodexo. Today, unfortunately, we're here with a topic that's not something we wish any of us had to deal with. You know, since January of 2020, there have been a significant number of reports of AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander individuals, being threatened and harassed across the country. These incidents have been uh, told, such as go back to China. Uh, You brought the virus to us. People have been spat upon and even killed. So many folks from the Asian American community are asking why, and those of us who are advocates and allies of the Asian community need to be open and sensitive to the experiences that they all have to deal with on an everyday basis. There have been 122 incidents of anti-Asian hate crime in 16 of the country's most popular cities last year. That's a 150% increase. Majority of them have been verbal, but as I said earlier, there have been a number of physical altercations. So What we hope to do today is open up the window, look a little closer at how our fellow employees of Sodexo are are seeing the world, and given all of us who want to be allies and supporters of the community, a window on what we need to do to support you, better understand your experiences, and to see it from your point of view. So I'm going to start off with a question, and I'm going to start with you, Linda, because you are on my left. Tell us your Asian American story. You know, are you first? second, third generation. Tell me your story. So good afternoon, everyone. My name is Linda Lan. Um, I'm going to go ahead and answer it by saying that I am first generation. And I'm going to define that because it seems like everyone has a slightly different definition of what first generation versus second generation is. Um, That means my sister and I are the first generation of our family to be born in the U.S., My father and my mother were born in mainland China, spent most of their formative years growing up in Taiwan, actually. My father has a rather thrilling 
escape story from Shanghai, China at the height of the Cultural Revolution, and then ultimately grew up, his, spent his formative years in Taiwan, and then ultimately made it to the U.S. to pursue his graduate studies. Wow, that uh, adventuresome story of your dad, we might need to come back to that because that's a common theme. I've seen this in other uh, of events and conversations I've had. So, so something very interesting. How about you, Elisa? First of all, let us congratulate you on being a new mom. She is a young boy, but his name is Hunter. She looks great as I'm seeing her sitting in front of me. But how about you? Uh, what's your Asian American story, Elisa? Thank you, Jerry. And I will take a page from Linda's book and um, give my definition as well, because I thought I was, you know, an expert on this, but um, there's many out there floating. And so the definition I used, and I, I would say that I'm technically first generation, is foreign born, referring to people born outside of the U.S. to parents also not um, born in the U.S. or as a citizen. So we all immigrated um, at the same time for the land of opportunity, if you will, for the the dream. And so I consider myself a child of both worlds, so to speak. You had a foot in both in both worlds. I, I know I talk about that with one of my team about, you know, her thinking in her home tongue first before she thinks in English. Uh, that's interesting. So these are very important um, perspectives for people who if we really want to understand our, our, our fellow workers, our fellow human beings. You got to understand that. How about you, Hussein? You have a slightly different path to the U.S., I'm sure. Well, well tell us your story. <laughs> yes. So it's interesting to listen, Jerry, to, to Linda's and, and uh, Elisa's definition because I don't know where I fit in. I'm a hybrid, I think. <laughs> you know, if you look at me, I'm, I'm Indian by descent. I was born and raised in Kenya predominantly black African country. So I wake up one morning and I'm as black as I think as the other guy next to me. But then, uh, you know, the, uh, fortuitously, I, I received a scholarship to come to a university in the United States. So I don't know if I call myself unborn first generation because I was the first one to come to America on a, on a student visa. And then the rest is history. Going back to my Indian descent, I mean, you know, Kenya being a predominantly black African country, I am fourth generation Kenyan. So I'm as Kenyan as the next guy, right? Never been to India, have no um, relations or family in India, mostly ancestral. So it, it gives a very different perspective about my uh, assimilation and uh, in, in kind of in, c- coming to America and how, how where I am today uh, versus, you know, many or many, many other individuals, including Linda and Elisa's stories. So it's, that's the blessing of this whole country, you know. I like that unborn first generation. And what's interesting that I think people need to learn from this is that we see people who appear to look one way and we think we know who they are. And we find out that we don't know very much about them at all. And it's kind of where our biases come from, where we kind of put people in boxes and say, oh, you look this way, you look that way. How can you be fourth generation Kenyan? When people look at me, they start talking to me in Spanish. Ah. So they think I'm, I'm, I'm Hispanic. Uh, when I was traveling uh, extensively uh, overseas, uh, many Italians would think I spoke Italian or, or, or so they would automatically. So it does those unintentional biases just come about based on physical appearances. You know? Yeah. Well, ladies, do any of you want to add anything to he said? Yeah, if I can add. It's weird because it's been so many years now that I've moved here and, and we kind of took a path of, you know, when we moved to um, out into the south that. We wanted to assimilate, so to speak, to, to really fit in and, you know, watch Mary Poppins to learn English. Of course, that's not the right English they use in the States. But um, just being born and raised in Taiwan, I thought that, you know, everybody's Asian and we're all kind of the, the same, so to speak. But then coming here and even now, people will still um, say, wow, you don't, you know, you immigrated here and you don't have an accent. And that's so crazy like the the call out so to speak and so it kind of makes me more aware okay i'm still a little bit different than others whether it's you know like the way i look or like what i like to eat or my perspectives and even though i myself think oh we're all you know it's been so many years now that i've been in the states and i i don't see anybody as different but every so often new people that i meet will say that and i'm just it's just like a curious insight like oh i didn't think that you know that might that my accent was so on point, if there is such a thing, right? Right. 
And I actually have a, a slightly similar but different story to Elisa for um, right after graduate school, I moved to Hong Kong and lived in Hong Kong for two years. And I just remember kind of having a moment where I was looking across the sidewalk and just felt, oh my goodness, finally, like I am in an environment where everyone looks like me. And so I was so happy and I was working and a coworker actually said to me, Linda, you know, when we look at you, you're totally Chinese, but when you open your mouth, you're not Chinese at all. And that was like a moment of reckoning. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm amongst my people and I still don't fit in. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a very good segue because what people need to hear from this story, what I'm taking from this is again, not to put people in boxes, understand that people's experiences, their paths to come to wherever you get to meet them and know them are very different and very nuanced, but, but still sometimes can be very stereotypical. Uh, they can be stereotyped here in the U.S. And the, as we say, well, your accent is this and it should be that. And so, so I think there's a lot of texture there. So let me ask you a question. As we know, our topic is around the Asian hate. Have any of you, have you ever felt unsafe in, in, in America and, and have those feelings increased over the last year or so? I'll let you start, Elisa. Have you ever felt unsafe here in, in, in the U.S.? I don't think I've ever felt unsafe in the U.S. And again, everybody has a different experience. So I feel mine is largely attributed to, I guess, my dad's military upbringing for me. He was in the military, my grandfather as well. And he had me take Kung Fu at somewhat of an early age self-defense. And he was always of, you know, the military way, which is you stand up straight, you display confidence, you stand up for others who can't advocate for themselves. And I think over the past year, seeing everything that's unfolded, that's been my main connection to the events that have taken place. When I read of, you know, the tensions, the, the increased attacks in the Asian and the elderly community, my, my first thought was, okay, I got to do something. Like, what's my call to action? What can I do to stand up for those that maybe can't or they were raised differently or for whatever reason, right, and kind of disrupt what is quickly becoming sort of a status quo or on some level accepted because at some point we're sort of desensitized to it because every day we're hearing a new report, right? So for me, that's more of like a personal challenge to myself. But so to speak, I haven't felt unsafe at all in the sense that I can't just get on with my daily life, but I, I have empathy for those that do. And I want to be an ally in that sense. Good, 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 good. Hussein, how about you? You've been here for a long time. You ever felt unsafe? I, I wouldn't say physically uh, unsafe, no. Um, but I think what I've maybe, uh, and, and my family points this out to me because I'm kind of so happy to make friends and get, get to know other people that it maybe doesn't dawn on me. But I think what I've experienced is uncommunicated nuances, right? So, so whether it's body language, whether it's uh, facial expressions, or just unintended comments like, I don't see you as brown or I see you as the next white guy, you know? And, and, mm -hmm. and so over the course of time, you, you become immune to that because, I mean, I'm the guy who is kind of doesn't look like the other quote unquote normal person next to me who might be white. So for me, that's kind of the, the subliminal, you know, messaging. And, and I'm more aware of it because prior life, I kind of, just looked at it as, oh, that's interesting, you know, um, they must just not know, or it's just a naive question. Right. But I have kids now, right? And I have a 20-year-old and a 23-year-old, and, and my wife is white American. So they're in a much different situation because they're also seeking their own kind of identity and because right. they're, they're right. neither Indian or Asian nor totally white, and their generation and their circle of influence is how do they, what is their identity, right? And do they feel threatened? So for me, it's beyond, cascades beyond me. Uh, and, and the best example I can give you is I'm a runner. I run every morning and I've run probably for the last 30 years. I've never felt unsafe because of the color of my skin or where I'm from, right? And there's many reasons why people would want to choose to, but, but I always look at it as, you know, I think there's a phobia. There's individuals out there who just, maybe it's lack of knowledge or, or fear of, of mm -hmm. you know, whatever that is that drives that. So, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Uh, the fact that you have um, biracial children 
and uh, their, their, their identity, how they identify and how people identify them and put them in a box or not and how they stereotype them or not. I heard this recently where someone's whole perspective on their experience was all driven through the eyes of their children. It's just not about me. It's how my kids going to be seen and how they're going to experience life. How about, how about you, Linda? You know, you have children and you've, you've heard what uh, Elise's military background and then Hussein's is very different. What about yours? Have you ever experienced this? I wouldn't go so far as to say unsafe, but I definitely take pause and, and kind of do have the niggling thought in the back of my in the back of my mind as to whether or not that is uh, a place that might not be so receptive to minorities coming in. In the neighborhood that we live in, in the community that we live in, we are very, very diverse, strong Asian presence in our community. And so that's what my kids have grown up around. But if we were to go on vacation somewhere, I more so in the past year have just taken a moment's pause to reflect upon whether or not that's the uh, a safe environment for us to bring our kids to. Are they going to be subject to not so much violence? I don't think about violence so much, but perhaps I should. I just think about snarky comments or perhaps even not so snarky, just bold-faced, derogatory um, attacks. And that's where my kind of mind shift has uh, expanded as a result of the events over the past year. Let me ask you, any of you can answer this. How do your, does your family feel about this? If you have family here in the U.S., how do they feel about it? How, have you had any conversations with family members, parents? I know one of our board members is African-American. His wife is, is Asian. And he said his mother-in-law is really scared. You know, she was born outside the country and she's really scared. Any of you have seen this up close personal with friends, family, other Sodexo um, people? My kids, again, grew up in a community that's very, very diverse. A lot of Asians in our community. When I kind of expand their horizons and tell them about things that are happening in, in the world, in the U.S., in Georgia, et cetera, they are shocked. They don't understand why. And I say, well, it's really because they don't like Asians. These things are happening because people don't like Asians and, and they're having a difficult time processing and to, mm. to have to have that conversation with them as to, but why would that, you know, that doesn't make any sense. My kids are ages 10 and 13. It's a difficult conversation to have and really unfortunate because I didn't think I would have to have that conversation with, with my kids. I thought, mm. I just didn't think that I would have to have the, this kind of conversation with my kids, but I do. I very much do. So that's a, an important insight for people who are listening and people who want to be allies uh, to understand it's a real difficult thing to have to have these kinds of conversations with your kids just based upon the way they look. There's nothing that they can do about it. It's the package God put them in. Yet you have to say, hey, you know, people might say something to you because of the way you look. And that's important for people to have empathy that that's not a fun conversation to have. I've had conversations about my boys being black. And when you get stopped at the, by the police, not if you do. And I wish I didn't have to have that conversation. So I want people to know that. Anything else we add before we go on to the, to the next question? Hussein? Yeah, the, the only Lisa? thing, I mean, I think to piggyback on, on what Linda said, we've got to look at this beyond the current race dimensions. Because what's happening is we're in a melting pot. So more and more cross-intercultural marriages are going to happen that's going to explode a whole different level of curiosity, fear, phobia, right? And how do you manage that? Because today we're dealing with violence against Asians. We have violence against, you know, black Americans. We have violence against a whole different, you know, racial groups. But tomorrow we're going to create a blended racial group. I don't know what you're going to call yeah. it. <laughs> Good luck, Jerry. That's your job. But, but to me, that's, that's bubbling in the background, right? And so I think we need to be vigilant uh, and really need to be proactive about how we acknowledge that. Lisa? I know we're talking about the Asian community, but there's been somewhat of a spotlight on um, the Asian or elderly community as well, just um, the tax that they faced. And, and some of them, like you said, um, did not uh, grow up here. And so there's kind of that level of fear of like before they can, you know, live and do as they can freely. But now, I don't know, like any any type of action you take, it comes with a calculated risk. And so I use my mother as an example because we um, immigrated here and, and she's like myself, just very independent. And if we see something that's not right, you know, we'll want to call it out or do something. And we've kind of given her the direction that 
um, you know, not like keep your head in the trenches or just go about your day, but um, that she just is, uh, you know, living, you know, fending for herself. So she has to just be a little bit more reserved. And if she sees something like obviously do try to get help, et cetera, but don't put yourself directly in there because, you know, you could be at harm's way. And mm. that was never a discussion we had with her because we just never really, it was never really even a thought. Having to talk to your elderly parents to say, hey, back up a little bit. Don't jump into it for fear. We, we're concerned for your safety. Is kind of the same thing that we heard from Linda about her children. So let me, let's move to this, um, this question of the notion of being the model minority. I mean, this was a term coined in the late 60s, early 70s by someone in the New York Times, I believe, about why couldn't Blacks and Mexicans and Latinos be more well-schooled, well-heeled, like the Asians. They were the model minority. Have you ever heard that term before? Has it been used against you? Have you ever had any experiences on it? What does that term mean to you? any of you? Uh, I struggle with it. I mean, it's quite a quite a benchmark to live under, and there's nothing that we can do about it. Like, on the one hand, it's a double-sided compliment. Or, yeah. Thank you very much for creating that. We love, you know, hearing that we kind of are great allies in the U.S. population or, or however it is you want to want to phrase it. But along with it comes a heavy load to, to bear. Um, and I think, you know, right from the get-go, you got a really high benchmark to to live up to. And you know what? Like Chinese people just do, Asians, I guess, just do that naturally anyway. So we didn't need like this additional label to make things any worse. So, I mean, there is, you know, some comedic elements to it, but, um, you know, there's goods and bads to it all. The comment you just made, Asians do that anyway. It, it, the people have to be careful not to make that a stereotype. You know, the tiger mom and all those kinds of things that you see on television. Not in the Asian moms that I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you what do you say to your allies? How do they how do they deal with that? I would say mo- for the most part, our parents came from different times and went through a whole lot of hardships to mm-hmm. get us here. And f- for for that sweat equity, that pain, and in many times it's back breaking pain, like literal pain. Mm-hmm. They want us to seize and and grasp upon every single every single opportunity that is presented and that means you know play the violin play the piano play the cello play the saxophone play the trumpet and then on top of that you know go to all your math classes and be doing college level calculus like they just have gone through so much to get us here that they really want us to scoop up every single thing that's out there and just run with it that is the best explanation I have heard that is just perfect from my perspective. You know, we went through such a difficult time. We want you to not miss anything. Squeeze the last bit of juice out of that lemon of opportunity. And so that completely, I get it. Elisa, how about you? What, what does that term model minority mean to you? Is it positive? Is it negative? Have you experienced anything with it? Um, yeah, that's a, it's a great question. I think it lends itself to just, Again, bearing the the burden of being put in the model minority group because of the physical appearance. And I think I was reading somewhere that a lot of people assume that we're okay as a group and that we don't have any reason to complain because we've been given, I guess, these opportunities or privileges. And everybody is really different across the Asian American community. So the fact that there's kind of that mentality out there kind of speaks to the work that's still needs to be done um and but it's it's hard in the sense because i want to advocate for advancing opportunities and rights for asian american americans and to create that awareness um you know i'm sure you've heard of like the bamboo ceiling or certain workplace biases that we'll face but at the same time i really subscribe to this idea of meritocracy in the sense that anyone with skill imagination can sort of aspire and reach the highest level. That was ultimately the reason why our parents wanted us to immigrate um, to the U.S. because, you know, the assumption is everybody's on the same level playing field. And so for myself, it's the idea of if you work as hard as you can and if you just hit the grind, 
you can succeed in your own name and not because the company or someone wants to tout like, oh, we just hired the first female Asian, you know, CEO or whatnot and be like, because we feel, you know, we, we checked off a box or whatnot. So it's, it's a hard, I guess, struggle there. Yeah, there's a lot wrapped up into that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Hussein for his point of view before we get into the next uh, topic. Go ahead. Hussein, what about you? Model minority? I echo what my colleagues are saying, but I think the concept of, of uh, model minority to me first is a statistical term, right? Because the term minority is, is a definition of whether, you know, what percentage of population do you fit in. But to, to me, it's more about, you know, an appreciation of cultural nuances and, and differences. I mean, you know, we, we all grew up in different ways and we had very different values. And hopefully there's some common values that we all believe in you know, doing good, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that the concept of, as, as Linda and, and Anissa both uh, articulated, the concept of moral minority was, you know, you did a few things well, you took advantage of every opportunity that had came your way. And as somebody told me, with great opportunity comes great responsibility. So, mm -hmm. so you, you know, when you're given a chance, you've got to kind of go for it. So for me, the, the idea of a moral minority also is that, from a cultural standpoint, we tend to cocoon a lot as well, you know, and so what you will find is the concept of individuality or independence or, or uh, once you're 16 or 18, you're going to do whatever you want. And that's different for different cultures, right? And there's an expectation in different cultures, particularly in, in the Asian culture, that you're going to kind of stick with the plan, right? And, you know, it's lawyer or it's a doctor or you're going to do something very, very profound, you know, and naming and is important and status is important. But if you don't understand all of that, the ambition of the individuals can be misconstrued as going after the brass ring or, or whatever, you know, the definition of moral minorities. But I think I think Linda is spot on that we're almost bred to take advantage of every opportunity that comes our way and make the best of it. If that's a bad thing, then... Okay, guilty. <laughs> real, real quick, how do you feel about the model minority being working against you and that the, you qualify to get in Harvard, but you can't because there's too many Asians? How do you feel about that? Anyone? I've definitely had that thought. Uh, you know, my kids do well in school, but they're not the best, the best, the best. And I've actively debated whether or not, you know, when it comes time for them to apply to colleges, whether or not they should check that they're Asian or leave it unchecked and not declare because I do have some concerns as to whether or not they're going to be able yeah. to get in the school that they yeah. rightfully should because the, the, the bar is set so high for yeah. the Asians. Right. And, and so, so that, again, this is another perspective that as our listeners, if you, if you don't live in an Asian experience, I mean, these are the kinds of things that, that, that are playing out in your household. Should I apply to the school if I really don't think I'm going to get in because they have a high diversity qualification or whatever it may be and that, that's a real balancing act because the universities want to provide a, a an inclusive community but yet these policies discriminate against one group based upon their academic achievement that's not what we really want so so let's let's move on we've got uh, a few more questions here what does bringing your whole self to work look like at Sodexo as an Asian American what does it look like bringing your whole self to work. And uh, I'm going to come back to you, Linda. I think Sodexo does a superlative job of it. These employee business resource groups are phenomenal. I started a program within Pang, our Pan-Asian network group, called Lunch Out with Pang, because I heard so many people say, you know, I love Asian food, all Asian food, but I never go to them because I don't know what to order. And so we, you know, this is back in the day when we could actually go into the office. We would choose one lunch, lunch Friday within the month. We would choose a restaurant. We would choose some person to host, uh, to serve as host. And that doesn't mean you pick up the tab. That means you serve as the seeing eye dog for everyone else as to, you know, what's good, what dish you should order. And that ended up being a heck of a lot of fun a fantastic way to establish relationship, to meet new people, to draw people away from their desk. And you're going through a cultural learning as well because you're being exposed to 
different foods, you know, I mean, just Chinese food alone, there's Northern Chinese, there's Southern Chinese, there's spicy Chinese, Mm -hmm. there's Korean, there's Indian, there's a million different flavors of Indian. It just ended up really being something that had tremendous momentum and so much fun and just kind of all came together beautifully. And it was all about Sodexo's core culture, core fiber and belief that you bring your whole self to work if that means your food smells, so be it. It might smell, but it's it sure is delicious, so don't knock it until you try it. And and the attitude is very, very welcoming. Very good. How about you, uh, Lisa? What does uh, bringing your whole self to work look like for you? I think, first and foremost, just bringing my whole self to work is just having a good representation of who Elisa is and then standing and what do I stand for and contributing to Sodexo. Um, just kind of on that individual uh, level microcosm, so to speak. And then secondly, I think that next layer is representing the Asian American community appropriately in, you know, my work cohort um, or in other networks within Sodexo. And then specifically, I think serving as co-chair of paying something that I'm wanting to create more this year is a lot of web resources so that our members and employees can feel more digitally connected, whether through food, culture, or they want to learn more about um, Asian American history, which we have um, the Heritage Month coming up in May. And just also just joining and supporting other um, employee business resource groups we have because you know, we want to support our community, but we also want to be allies um, to the greater um, network as well. And that means taking some time to stay abreast of current issues that affect all of those groups and creating a, an open and inclusive space. So I have a friend of mine that's, that's Asian Indian, and uh, we were going to play golf, and he asked if he could play his native music. And he played Indian music. It was the first time that I'd I, it was it was so unusual, but it was because he felt so comfortable with me that he could do that. I wonder, do any of you have any of those moments when a certain part of who your culture is comes out and you're like, oh, is somebody watching? I see you laughing, Linda. You must have something to add to that. All the time. I mean, all the time. We Give have, me an example. Uh, we have this Asian playlist. Or we have a playlist uh, that we play in the car with my boys. And, you know, usually it's just a local commute, so we don't get that much time. But you know, there are some some definitely Chinese hits in there. And my husband, who is also Chinese, but actually grew up in Kansas. So I always joke around that he's just yellow on the outside um, that is painted on. He's just like, really, is this song really on there? And the kids are like, yeah, legit. Like, we love this song. And it's just funny because it, you know, you would think that they being second generation kids, but yeah, they, they love it. And, and they're, they like introducing their friends to it too. So let's this, would you show that at work? Would you yeah, play that absolutely. at work? Absolutely. Yeah. Good. That says a lot about, Hey, I've you? had, I've had African-American coworkers give me, you know, a whole lowdown on which Korean dramas to watch. So it's, there's, there's all <laughs> sorts of exchange. It doesn't necessarily go from Asian outwards, you know, it comes from inwards as well. So it's very welcoming. Yeah. I used to listen to this Korean, uh, station on uh, satellite radio it was really good and great music. I wish I knew what the hell they were saying, but it was really good because the the beat and all that. How about you, Hussein? How do you bring your whole self to work? I think it's a very good question. I think I look at it in a couple of ways. One is, you know, as an organization, I think the fact that we're making a conscious and concerted effort to recognize that talent comes from all different dimensions and and backgrounds and individuals and so i think that's a great um, testimonial as well as uh, you know kind of a, a hats off to, to sodexo as an organization because if the company you know did not make that conscious decision to to spend the time invest the energy resources to facilitate that platform then we wouldn't be having this discussion with you jerry right. we would, we would yeah. be start, starters up right now mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and 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 quite frankly we're on the other side we're actually providing support and and counseling to companies that want to you know get get to this point right so so yeah. i think that's fantastic because we we've had over 10 plus years of this now and, and establishing this i think the other thing is while one could argue that having EBRGs can be a cocooning factor, it's actually an opportunity to cross-pollinate. So it allows us to 
really say, okay, while we have our, our, our affinity groups, my words, um, it also allows to Linda's point to share food, culture, music, whatever that people are comfortable doing in an environment that's considered safe, quote unquote. Whereas, you know, if it was not for this environment, and, and I would hope that that experience has a reciprocal or exponential impact because mm -hmm. those folks that Linda and Elisa impact through food music are going to go tell other people and other people are going to, exp you see what I'm saying? So there is that, yeah. there's the spider web effect that's, that we've got to manifest because it's not just about me as an individual, but it's the impact that I can have in contributing. So that's really, to me, the power of, of what Selex is doing. And, and I think the other thing is we're a global organization. So cross-cultural experience is, is germane to us. I mean, the yeah. fact that we're large in North America is one aspect, but we're in you know, over 60 to 70 plus countries. countries so right. we understand yeah. culture <laughs> yeah. and how people work and eat and play. <laughs> well, this next question, Hussein, I'm coming back to you. What's your advice for younger Asian professionals coming up in the system? I, I think there are a couple of things I would say, right? I would say from a personal standpoint, while it might not be as easy and difficult, uh, be yourself. Don't try and change your accent. I, I, you know, everybody here has talked about their accent. There's no upside in that. I think what you have is an opportunity to really be able to use that as a weapon. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but you got to ass assess the weapons you have from the background that you've been given and the stories that, you know, and those stories are important because when I say my story and I explain, you know, how it came about, the person that has never left the United States or has not gone beyond a 30 mile radius is mm -hmm. in awe, is in awe. And, and, and that is powerful because that is so important. And that's not, a, that's not to say that you're going to use that to get the next you know, C-suite job. It's just that in order to fully immerse yourself into the kind of American experience, the melting pot of, of you, you, you have to kind of be yourself. I think the other thing is have a plan, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's the time you get up in the morning and, and knowing what you're gonna do, lace up, go for a run, just have a plan. And, and you know, mentally stick to the plan. Because if, if you're just, you know, victim to all of the things that are happening, it's a problem, right? So you gotta kind of stick to your plan and, and build your personal plan. I think the other thing is expose the vulnerability. It's okay right? It's okay. I mean, if, and people will give you chances. I don't, you know, we're a country of 350 plus million people. I don't think everybody has the same agenda <laughs> to, to go, to go beat up other people that don't look at it like themselves. So, right. so, 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 you know, I, I think there's a reason why the United States is, is where it's at. And, and a lot of people want to continue to come to the United States. So I think you've got to be vulnerable, get out of that you know, the cocooning factor, but, but find your authenticity. How do you fit in to this opportunity that you have in front of you right. while right. respecting your cultural nuances, your backgrounds, etc.? And that's up to you. No one yeah. can write a book for you. That's you. That's your chance. That's, uh, that's good. Uh, be yourself, have a plan, stick to it, and expose your vulnerabilities. Uh, Linda and Elisa, you want to add something to that? What are your advice for your younger you coming up in the system. I'll chime in there with a couple of uh, hopefully nuggets of value. Um, I think staying hungry is really important. I was just told at an early age that we were poor and that we were going to be starting out disadvantaged or maybe in a lower position than others. And I think that's what really fueled this fire in me to um, kind of question that like, why are we starting out lower? Like, why can't everybody be the same? And how can I overcome that and kind of really apply this brute force? Like, I will do everything I can to, whether it's, you know, like excel in piano or, you know, my mom is kind of like that tiger mom in that sense, you know, that she wanted me to get, be good at math and science and piano and run track and, you know, be, you know, be like Elon Musk. I mean, which if you can believe it, like all those in one sentence. And she'd be saying this in the kitchen while she's sharpening knives because she's scary as hell, you know? And she scared many boyfriends just literally doing that. And which kind of then spills over into this next idea of setting very focused goals because 
everybody has so many different interests and um, passions to pursue. And I think if you can channel that energy into one or two um, things that you really want in life, and part of that is visualizing it, putting a lot of energy into it, what you put into the universe is what you get out, and sort of manifesting it in the sense that every day you're thinking about it, you're telling people that that's what you want, and people get that consistent picture of, uh, like, my name is Jerry Fernandez, and this is what I'm about, and this is where I want to get in life. And then the more you say that, the more consistent you are with that, you will eventually get to that end goal. And then lastly, just for younger professionals, you know, everybody has their own goals of whether they want to climb the corporate ladder, they want to start their own company. I think it's important to also just take a step back sometimes when you're connecting with um, different people, whether it's on LinkedIn or just in, in person, thinking about when you meet someone, take the time to actively listen to what they're about and then think about where can I add value to this new connection that I'm making that I think will help build a solid foundation for the relationships that you cultivate and ultimately could help you um, later on in your career or in your personal life. Well, that's an excellent uh, networking tip that I learned years ago. Give first, share always, always looking for a way. How can I add value to your experience or to this moment? People remember that. And uh, you're right. It builds really strong bonds. Last question. Um, What's one thing you would like non-Asians to know about you and your culture? Uh, what would you like our our non-Asian communities? What would you like me to know about you and your culture? What What's something that would really help us better understand the, not only you, but our Asian brothers and sisters in general? I think the one thing that I would like people to know about um, the Asian culture is that we are a, a part of a very complicated whole. Um, I just was rooting around on the internet and just came up with this uh, statistics because Lord knows I couldn't come up with it myself. 2,197 languages, 56 officially recognized ethnic identities, 260 million indigenous people. And so kind of don't paint us with just one paintbrush because we are super complicated. And, you know, all of these efforts to have the U.S. Census maybe break us up into smaller groups. It's a huge problem to to tackle but you know when you when you kind of paint the entire group of us with one paintbrush it really does do us an injustice because we have some of the wealthiest wealthiest most accomplished and then uh, also the largest population of those that are very impoverished and so it's really just kind of this huge chunk of the population that are being painted with one brush and that really does kind of do us a, a pretty significant injustice so just to have that level of awareness would be huge Good. Um, how about you, Hussein? What do you, one thing do you have as a, that um, you would want your non-Asian friends to know about you and know about your culture, know about Asians in general? I think it's important to acknowledge that we're part of the ecosystem, the human ecosystem, and that, you know, we all have the same kind of aspirations, achievement, objectives, life goals, wanting to do better as everybody else has in the human human ecosystem right and Mm -hmm. and and the way we go about it uh, should not be an indictment in the manner in which uh, you know we're treated because I think everybody wants to do well for themselves for their families for the communities they live in etc and that we are all blessed to be in this you know in this world called the United States of America which provides us you know an equal chance and, and, and so I think the respect of that credence, that ethos, is, 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 that's all we ask, you know, is that we get the same chance as, as those, quote unquote, considered to be, you know, naturally born Americans. <laughs> right. Very good. How about you, Elisa? You got the last word. What one thing would you like to leave with the non-Asian uh, allies or listeners to, to better understand um, their experience and maybe be better allies. Yeah, I think like many, you know, Linda and Hussein have said, um, we are just a very diverse group because a lot of people think Asian Americans and they might sometimes immediately default to like, oh, it's Chinese or whatnot. But there's so many different um, languages, cultures and 
um, identities that are all rolled under Asian Americans. And the, the funny thing is like, I just growing up overseas, growing up in Asia, I was just around so many people that were like myself. And then coming here, I had thought that it would be some of a similar experience. I would see a lot of this same people. And I, like Linda, kind of looked up the stats because I think, oh yeah, we're, you know, we, we're gotta be at least in the 20%, right? Of that, you know, like according to the census. So I guess in 2010, Asian Americans were about 5.6% of the total U.S. population, which I thought, oh, that can't be because I'm fortunate enough now to live in California. And I think there's more Asian population in, in the Western U.S. So it's just a different experience because I'm in sales and I meet a lot of different people. And sometimes, it, and my husband even said where he grew up, there wasn't really any, hardly any Asians at all. You know, when I do meet people, I want to I want to show them the best. Like, oh, we have the best food. We have, you know, most people always say like, oh, like I, I've heard of the, the boba milk tea, you know, so that's kind of their one anchor, so to speak, of, of Asian food. But but we have so much, as Linda and Hussein would know, of just the, you know, the different delicacies. I keep thinking of stinky tofu, Linda, which I'm sure you'll appreciate. I always break people that come to visit or the last time I was in Taiwan, friends that came with into it of just all the the really crazy stuff like wood ear mushrooms uh, which I know a lot of people don't like because it's a texture thing and it looks like it's all black and just not um tastes so, fine I love it it, it tastes fine exactly Jerry you're you drank the Kool-Aid and so I just ask that people non-Asians keep an open mind and just stay curious about um ourselves and just this whole idea of that we're we're not so different um and I mean, just using Taiwan as an example, because I was born and raised there. I brought some friends there and I said, oh, do you want to go surfing? And they were like, oh, I thought that was like an American thing. And I'm like, wow, we have, you know, in, in Kanding, we have a lot of great surf spots. And so it's it's just nice to be able to break down some of those barriers of, you know, like, oh, Asians, like that we're, we're usually a certain way and we're very formal or very rigid. But no, we like to kick back too. And we like to, you know, we like to catch waves, you know, dawn patrol. And so hopefully we can sort of be the conduit in, um, you know, building that bridge. Well, uh, listen, you three have been fabulous as uh, guests here. And then we covered a lot of territory and I'm really uh, grateful to Sodexo for uh, making this happen. And, and I feel fortunate to be part of it. I want to just kind of remind a few people where we've been here. We started out with our uh, first question about, uh, you know, your Asian story and, you know, watching and learning English by watching Mary Poppins was one of the ones that stood out for me, you know, and unborn firstborn. You know, so when you see someone, they don't all have the same experiences. They came to, to the country in different ways. Some of them were born here, but parents were born elsewhere. You know, it's really about nuance. It's not physically, you know, the things that make people unsafe. It's sometimes it's the body language, the un, unsaid things, you know, the way they've excluded people. So it doesn't have to be physical uh, for making people to feel uncomfortable. And the fact that our parents, you've had to help your parents recognize and modify their behavior. Uh, so this has real, this, this hate has real, real implications. Um, uh, when it came to being a model minority, it's a struggle. It's an added le level of weight that you have to carry around. I know being black is a, I have to carry a certain extra element of wherever I go. I'm mindful of how people might stereotype me. So, you know, it's really, and then the piece of the model minority and why that parents push so hard is because they, you said this really well, Linda, that they went through so much to get here. It's pain and suffering and loss. They want the kids to grab every single opportunity. So that, completely explains to me this concept of tiger mom and why Asians are so as a, as a rule as you know so motivated and you know then we talked about Sodexo was is such a uh, a great place to work they let you bring your whole self to work you know, the food experience that lunch was really good somebody is going to be what did you say the um the navigator or whatever to show you the way around the seeing food. eye dog I seeing said. eye dog <laughs> that was great uh, you know but but um you know, being involved with Pang has really made such a difference in how you get a chance to contribute to the overall company and the culture. And, and um, the company makes a conscious effort, Hussein, you said, to allow all walks of, of life to be themselves. It's a choice. It's deliberate. It's intentional. When it came to well, what advice for younger people, this was great. Be yourself. Have a plan and stick to it. 
um, and be vulnerable. People will not begin to build trust if they don't think they can trust you, you know, and they got to learn a little bit about what your experience is. And you got to share that and let people know that, hey, uh, I'm, I'm willing to take coaching, et cetera. Stay hungry. I love that. You know, stay hungry, be, be, be motivated, set very focused goals. Cause there's lots of things, lots of shiny things out there that can attract you focus on one or two that are really going to advance you and channel your energy. You said, at least, which I thought was good, you know, be supportive of each other. We sometimes, you know, let people be out there on their own. And so the colleagues help you could be supportive of, of us as well and be, be cognizant of your community, lots of resources in our community. And the last question that we got to was, you know, we're part of a complicated group, a very, I think you said 2,192 languages. I mean, that is just sit on that for a moment. You know, all of us in the U.S. who were born here, we only speak one. Okay. <laughs> and so, so it's, a, it's, a, it's something for us to understand that the, the Asian lexicon, the Asian palette is very diverse and has lots to add. Um, there's a big part of We're all part of a big ecosystem, you said, which I thought was great. With the same goals to do better. You know, don't don't indict me because I do it different. You know, different is not deficient. I learned from a good friend of mine. It's just different, you know, um, but we all want the same thing. And then Lisa, you know, you said we're diverse. Uh, don't just default to Chinese. You know, we, we are we are a big growing population and keep an open mind. Be curious because we are not so different. We are not so different. So I'm going to leave it there. Again, I want to thank you for a wonderful session. Uh, I learned a lot. I appreciate you all being willing to share your personal story. And uh, I hope that you all have a wonderful uh, rest of the day and that Sodexo has a very successful and profitable year. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jerry. That's our show for today. Special thanks to our listeners. And thank you for taking a seat at the table with us today. If you found our show to be valuable, please share with your network and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, as that helps more people find the show. You can also subscribe for free so that you never miss an episode. A Seat at the Table is brought to you by the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance, 